And welcome back to the Big Wake Up Call. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and time for my next guest, who is a number one best-selling author. You may know her book, The Light in Hidden Places. The brand new one is called Artifice, and we are going to visit with Sharon Cameron. Sharon, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. How are you? How are things going where you are? Uh, beautiful. Life is beautiful. Well, that's that is like the most upbeat response I have received all day. Now you're making me you're making <laughs> me feel better it. immediately. Excellent, excellent. I'm glad to hear that. So we have a brand new book here, Artifice, already getting rave reviews. Can you share with us uh, briefly what it's about? Yes, um, Artifice is um, a, a book that that I'm really excited about and I really love. It is about a girl in uh, Amsterdam during World War II who has been raised by artists in an art gallery and she decides to sort of create her own revenge for the um, invading Nazis by learning the art of a master forger and selling an art forgery to Hitler. And she's going to use the money that she gets from selling this art forgery to the Nazis to fund a baby smuggling ring, a wing of the Dutch resistance who is trying to save the last Jewish babies in Amsterdam. So basically making Hitler pay for the rescue of the very children he is trying to annihilate. And it's a story based on two true stories. A man who uh, ran a baby smuggling ring in Amsterdam and is credited with saving 600 children during the war and a master art forger who sold forgeries to the Nazis and made millions. Yeah, and and I you went right up to the top here with uh, selling a painting to Hitler and yeah, people if you know <laughs> if you know the background of history it's interesting that you had Nazis actually purchasing art because it feels like for the most part, they just went into these cities and, and began looting any and all treasures, especially they were collecting art for a regime which was like censoring art that was being produced in Germany. Yes, it is. It is actually a very interesting, um, and I'm so glad you actually asked that question. Most people do not, because yes, the Nazis were absolutely looting and confiscating, which is another word for stealing right. art. However, um, in Amsterdam, because they did consider the Dutch people um, to be uh, more of their ilk, um, they were sometimes purchasing, and they were often purchasing for very very low cut rate prices, but there was also competition going on, particularly between Hitler and Hermann Goring, his second in command, um, for collecting. They were they were trying to out collect each other and sometimes outspend each other. Um, that was sort of a status symbol between the two of them. And of course, Hitler was trying to collect for what he was going to call the Führer Museum, which was an art museum that he was going to build in Linz, which of course never actually happened. So they were actually spending occasionally a lot of money. I hadn't heard that, and it just made my skin crawl when you said Führer Museum, and it's to think <laughs> yes. they would be proudly displaying, and I guess it would have been spun as, oh, you know, here's wonderful art that has been acquired from abroad and we're highlighting the these artists versus like we're, we're displaying stolen goods. 
Yes, exactly. And I think there was this um, huge craving um, among the upper echelons of the of the Third Reich to be viewed as very cultured and intelligent, and uh, that was that was part of the persona that they wanted out there. Um, it's an interesting way, I think, to try to cover over a lot, a lot of ugliness with this beautiful art, but it was still ugly underneath. Now, you obviously researched that situation with uh, the Nazis, you know, stealing and, and you said in some cases purchasing art. You're very detailed with art forgery in here. How do, how do you research art forgery? And, and would you know at this point how, how to make a decent forgery? <laughs> well, I think I could make a decent forgery if I was any good at art, which okay. I am not. I am terrible, um, but I but I do appreciate it. Um, it was a lot of fun um, figuring out how um, this man, Han von Meegren, was able to forge portraits and and old Dutch masters and he was doing that by creating a plastic paint he was adding early plastic resins bakelite resin into paint and then baking paintings this created a cracking in the paint that imitated a 400 year old painting it was really why people had not been able to forge Dutch masters before um, because the paint has a very particular cracking yeah. pattern. Yeah. And he was able to do that by with, with these new plastic resins. Um, it was not easy. People have tried it um, and tried to use his paint formulas and it has not gone well, but he was able to make it work. You wonder, and and supposedly many of these were, and, and we can talk about the book too, not just Nazis stealing art, but I know that's a big yes. portion of your plot. We wonder how many paintings were, were never recovered, and maybe we have a sense of all the art produced by the Dutch masters, but it might not all be on the record. You wonder how many were, were destroyed in, in bombings and have just vanished into, into private houses. I, you know, it is an ongoing investigation. This this um, has been going on since the 40s, um, trying to relocate this art, uh, trying to ferret it out from all the places that that it ended up. And, you know, it was a very interesting story. Um, um, Gurlitt, one of the um, uh, agents who was actually um, collecting for the Fuhrer Museum, he was actually um, also collecting for himself, and just recently his son was found to be living as a hermit with hundreds and hundreds of paintings that had been collected slash confiscated slash right. stolen, um, you know, during during the war. And so everyone, um, you know, was just was hoarding this art, and this has this is an ongoing investigation that I think will continue for years. Now, what um, what drew you to this particular topic? Because you know, this is this is not something we we hear a lot about. Maybe we've heard a relationship of the Nazis stealing art, but combining that with raising money for saving the lives of Jewish children, how did you decide you wanted to sort of intertwine that? Yes, that's a really good question too. I. I was, I'm so interested in, in people who 
people like Johan von Halst, who, who started this baby smuggling ring, people who stand up and say no, you know, to these terrible things that are going on around them. And so as I was researching him and researching how he was saving these children, putting babies in laundry baskets and shopping sacks and handing them out the windows, whatever he could do to save these children's lives. And then I looked in comparison at Han von Megren, who lived in the same city at the same time, was about the same age and could not have used his time more differently. And I thought, wow, what would have happened if someone like Johan von Holst had had the millions that Han von Megren made from selling fake paintings? And I thought, you know, I think that's such an interesting question because I think Amsterdam would have been very different. I think the world might have been different if he had had access to that kind of money. And so that was really the question that spurred the idea for the whole story that became Artifice. Did, oh, I'm sorry. I, did, can you hear my microphone cut out there for a second? Can you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. All right. So we'll pick up here. Um, okay. When you are writing, you've written fantasy before. When you're writing historical fiction, is is your writing process different? Do you um, obviously you want to have some of the details somewhat more based in reality? But as far as characters and plot, is is that any different? You know, actually, it's not that different. Not nearly as different as people would think. I even when I have written in in other genres, because I I like any genre. I just like a good story. That's that's what I'm interested in. And but any of these other stories, I've written some like sci-fi, some dystopia. I have researched those exactly the way I would research for historical fiction because I find when when you ground a story in the reality of the human experience, when you reach back into history and you look at the way, at what human beings have experienced, the way they have reacted to those experiences, and you use that, even in a fantasy setting, um, even in a futuristic setting, I think it just creates this layer of believability. It, it feels real because there are so many portions that have been real for so many people. So I actually research these kinds of books um, the same, almost exactly to the same level as I would a historical novel. And, you know, and that is a lot of detail. I, I spend a lot of time on the research process because first of all, I love it. I enjoy it. Um, and second of all, it just, it just grounds the story and makes it, it makes the reader able to immerse because they believe what they're reading. And the new book, it's Artifice. It is now available wherever books are sold. We've been visiting with the author, Sharon Cameron. And Sharon, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoyed talking to you. And welcome back to the show. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and time for my next guest. We have the co-authors of an entertaining and insightful new book of social satire. The book is called Rebecca, Not Becky. And we are going to visit with Christine Platt and Catherine Wigginton-Green. And good morning. Thank you so much for calling in today. 
Good morning. Good morning. Now, sometimes with... uh, Oh, absolutely. Sometimes with two guests on the line, it's difficult to know who's who. So let me get a a voice print of each one. First, we have Christine. Hi, this is Christine. And uh, we have Catherine. Good morning. This is Catherine. Okay, great to have you both. Uh, Social satire. It's it's an entertaining book. There's a lot of insight here. It's Rebecca, not Becky. Can you share with us uh, briefly what it's about? Sure, Catherine, why don't you take this one? Okay, sure. So this is a story about friendship and motherhood and community against the backdrop of the ever-present racial reckoning um, happening within the U.S. And the book starts off um, three years post a a George Floyd-like event in Mm -hmm. the book that's been fictionalized. And we meet these characters who are living in very wealthy suburban enclave outside of Washington, D.C., and um, they are kind of at a crossroads, each of them individually, and um, and we watch how they they come together. Now, I like you're talking about, uh, and, and we've seen this portrayed in, in television, and apparently you, you have people trying to find a, a white friend or a black friend, and obviously you're doing it kind of lighthearted here, <laughs> but uh, it, it seems like people are, are, are trying to trying to do that and it, it's weird i've seen it like oh not because i particularly like this person because like i've got to be seen as is more more hip and cool i've got to expand my friend circle and it's not always for friendship it's it's for like i need to look cool yeah right you are so uh you're so right and that is one of the threads that we explore um with this narrative and what we do is we follow rebecca's journey as she tries to befriend uh, Deandrea. And also for listeners, this is a dual narrative. Uh, Catherine wrote the perspectives of Rebecca, and I wrote the perspectives of Deandrea, who is a black woman um, like myself. And um, I think, you know, we do see, uh, you know, this ever-growing need for folks who are, like, interested in having interracial friends interracial friendships, but to your point, they're not always um, authentic, right? Um, Or maybe they don't even start out that way. And so what we try and show um, through this, through this novel is what that looks like, right? Um, And and being very honest uh, and transparent about that, which is why Catherine and I chose the dual narrative approach. Now, my best friend growing up was a, a black family, two houses down. They moved in when I was in kindergarten, their son, Tony, and I, we just bonded instantly, had had so much fun. And at some point, I do remember saying like, wow, Ryan and Tony really get along as, as if it were a weird thing. And I said, yeah, we both like <laughs> wiffle ball and baseball cards and Star Wars and the Rolling Stones. And we, I didn't know it was a big deal until people started telling us it was a big deal. Yeah, and I bet mm-hmm. it was adults who were telling you it was a big deal, right? I mean, this is the funny thing. Right. What happens in the novel is that Rebecca and DeAndrea, um, you know, they have many reasons. Rebecca is desperate to want to have a black friend to to prove that she is a really good white person who's a good ally in yeah, the world. Yeah. And she's hyper-focused on that, but then she's not seeing DeAndrea as a human being who's a new fa- well, you're part of a new family who moved to their area who who has a lot going on, who's, you know, raising young kids and has a, you know, taking care of her aging mother-in-law and is lonely because she left her hometown. And, 
But then, and so DeAndre has every reason to not want to become friends with Rebecca, but their children have a different viewpoint. They are five-year-old girls who show up to school the first day wearing the same outfit, and it just takes off from there. Um, and it's the adults who, who, who get in the way, but if we let ourselves get out of the way, then we can actually learn a lot from them. Like the one that you had. Well, absolutely, you're absolutely right. It was adults we heard pointing it out because in my, you know, we had a bunch of kids to get together and whipple ball and, and play Star Wars, and I don't think any of the kids even thought about it or cared. Yeah. The other yeah, thing, I mean, too, that happens I, I, is that, oh. No, go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say, the other thing, too, is that while as the adults start, you know, start making comments like that, then there's also just as kids get older and as we as we grow up, we start to also understand how you know institutions and structures and policies around us are also telling us that this is something that isn't supposed to happen and there's a lot of things that get in the way and obstacles that do try and keep us apart you know and i yeah and the only thing no go ahead sorry ryan the only thing i was going to add is you know one of the other dynamics that we see in the novel um with sort of these friendships playing out from a childhood perspective and an adult perspective is oftentimes as parents, we pass down our own inherent biases and prejudices onto our children, right? And sometimes we feel like it is warranted or justified based on the experiences that we had as children, right? Something that left a mark on us, some sort of pain point that we don't want our children to experience. When in reality, we, you know, the lesson there is that we have to let them, you know, navigate this space in their own way and understand that, you know, every generation, the hope is that the work that, you know, Catherine and I and so many other uh, anti-racist practitioners are doing, that we're constantly moving the ball forward, right? The experiences that I had as a child with interracial friendships are completely different than the experiences that my daughter had. Right. And so I can't project my insecurities, my hurt, that harm onto her. And trying to think of it and now from an adult perspective back then, like, oh, I am the child of suburban boomers who grew up in the suburbs and then had families (laughs) of their own and lived in the same suburbs. So, you know, when the neighborhood started, you know, changing a little bit and, and, you know, more inclusive it had to be really odd for these people who have like well this has been a 99.9 percent white world for for most of my entire life exactly when and and there's an interesting point here you talk about uh, either you can think colorblind or color obsessed when we are going out of our way especially in the in the white community maybe going out of our way to not be seen as racist what what are we actually bringing into that isn't there a little bit of a lack of authenticity lack of honesty yeah that's exactly right i mean we we know uh, now a lot of people know at least who have some consciousness around these issues that you know, saying that we're colorblind or that we don't see race is one, just not realistic. And it's also not, um, it's not fully seeing all of the people around us. Uh, everyone's background and identity is actually really important that we want to not ignore that. We want to celebrate that. But what happens is similar to what I was saying earlier, which is that Rebecca wanted to prove that she's not colorblind, that she sees race, that she gets it. Right. And this yeah. is part of what we're kind of trying to have a little bit of fun with right. ourselves in this. But then what happens is that DeAndrea has moved there and she's lonely and she needs a friend and she is going to need help raising her daughter. And 
um, with her husband who's busy and, and people to pick them up from par- and carpool with and pick them up from school when you can't do it and all these different things that are about community. But we don't, when we only see someone as their race, then we lose out on their full humanity and who they are as a person and being able to actually show up for them in a meaningful and authentic way. I like that um, in, in talking about moving away from anti-racism, which is a great thing, but uh, and, and continue that, but also work toward relationship building, which I think is even more important. I just I just want to make more friends and whoever comes into my social circle, <laughs> and especially, you know, in, in music, there's... in my genre of music, it really doesn't matter who you are, so I, I think we're being more inclusive, and I would like everyone to do that, but without thinking about, oh, we have to be inclusive. We're, if you can play, you're in. Right. Right. And, you know, I love that you say that, Ryan, because that is exactly what Catherine and I are, are hoping that we show and teach readers with Rebecca, not Becky, right, that that work, first and foremost, starts with ourselves. Right. And this idea that, you know, you know what, I need to be more mindful. I need to be more open. I need to be more thoughtful about the people that I am in community with. Right. That is the start of this work. Right. Evaluating ourselves, evaluating our friendships and interpersonal relationships and family dynamics. Right. I think so often we think to change the world, you know, we have to. somehow have this large following or go out and do something grand and massive, right? right? Where on an individual level, if we just do the work collectively, you know, we'll be, we'll be fine. And that's how we move the work forward. So we hope that we hope that uh, we show that through Rebecca, not Becky. Yeah. The new book is Rebecca, not Becky. It is now available wherever books are sold. We've been visiting with the authors, Christine Platt and Catherine Wigginton Green. And thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much Thank for having me. Thank you, Ryan.